0: Rogues of the Black Fury, Episode 15 Rogues of the Black Fury, a novel, written and produced by Travis Heerman. This novel contains violence, adult language, and mature situations. Listener discretion is advised. For more information, please visit travisherman.com slash rogues. Chapter 23 Yarburg was a small city, situated in a triply fortuitous location, on an easily navigable harbor, at the mouth of the Iron River, and in proximity to some of the richest iron mines in all of Cuska. In the last century, Yarburg had become known for its fine steel and smithies. If not for the quality of Yarburg steel, which had led to new, superior types of guns, Cuscan armies could not have fought back the superior numbers of Fartha's last assault. Yarburg was the seat of House Yarwood's power and wealth. Every great house had their own iron mines and steel foundries, but none produced the quantity or quality that could compare to Yarburg steel. Javin's pistol had been designed by Felon Yarwood, perhaps the finest gunsmith in the world, who hailed from Yarburg. Felon Yarwood was now on loan from House Yarwood, serving the Grand General from his lavish manor house in the High District near Tarnak Castle. The renowned gunsmith had learned his trade here, in Yarburg, among its bloomeries and furnaces and foundries. This wealth and power lay over Yarburg like a grim gray pall, floating in an ash-gray haze above, as Javin and Tonin rode into the city. The wide and well-traveled road led from the outlying hills down toward the sea, and they could smell the smoke from a league distant, and the overhanging gray shroud from farther still. The city and surrounding hillsides bore a dark gray cast as if stained by scores of smoke plumes rising into a larger mass above. The air smelled of hot iron, smoke, slag, and charcoal. Beyond the city, the sea stretched off into the distant west. Broad, heavy-laden barges dotted the river and harbor. To the right, the broad gray ribbon on the Iron River emptied into the harbor, straddled by bridges and by city on both sides, stretching back up the river valley into the mountainous east. The barges carried endless tons of iron ore from the mines deep in the mountains to Yarburg's bloomeries to be smelted and refined and hammered. Javin ached after six days of hard riding. Fortunately, Saltstone was a smooth runner. Tonin was not so lucky. His Kalad, of dark brown buck they had named Spit for his tremendous skill at spitting great distances, ran like an avalanche, both on all fours and on his hind legs. Tonin had spent the first three days in abject misery until he had learned to synchronize his movements with spit's bone-jarring gait. But never once did he complain. All he said was, The people in my village have a saying, Pain is weakness leaving the body. Javin could only agree. Then soon you'll be the toughest man alive. Javin had never visited Yarburg before, and as they rode deeper into the city, he found himself cranking his head about to take it all in. Except for his time in the field at Tarn's Rift, he had spent most of his life in Norgard. He knew that city like his own hands, its atmosphere, its districts, its people. But the character of Yarburg was different. The people were shorter, broader, with darker hair and blunter features, as many Yarwoods. But the mood of the people seemed more industrious, with their heads down plowing through the labors of life with calluses on their hands and soot in the creases of their faces. Nor'garters enjoyed their merriment, their diversions of theatre and music and body alehouses, enjoyed the prestige of living in the capital city of Cuska. Even the commoners, Javin saw alehouses here too and an itinerant bard or two, but he doubted there was a theatre of any kind. The moment theatres crossed his mind, Bella soon followed, and just as quickly he drove her out. He dared not think about her just now. He had to be on the lookout for Rusk and the Black Furies. The deeper they moved into the city. With its incessant clanking and hammering, Javin found his shoulders growing tighter and tighter, and cold sweat emerging on his brow. His gaze flicked to every person they passed, searching for weapons, signs of threat. His ears filled with sound, his nostrils with smells. It did not matter that he told himself that there was no threat here. His mind raced and would not let it go. He and Tonin wasted no time in following River Street toward the harbor. In spite of the overall dinginess, the street was an attractive, curving thoroughfare, stone paved with an elaborate wrought-iron fence between the street and the stone-bricked riverbank. Shops and taverns lined the street, crowded with people, collades, and wagons. The air was filled with not only the charcoal smell of of the bloomeries, but also the succulent charcoal aroma of grilling meats. Street vendors twirled small wooden skewers over beds of glowing orange coals. After so many days on the road eating hard biscuit and smoked bok meat, Javin and Tonin could not resist the opportunity to pause at one of the stands and buy a sizzling handful of grilled duck and bok skewers. Tonin asked the vendor if most of the traffic bound for the harbor traveled through the city on this street. The vendor told him that it did, and Tonin followed by asking if he had seen a particular wagon pass by, large and painted yellow and white and gold. The man said he had seen just such a wagon the day before. At this news, Javin and Tonan took their steaming skewers, remounted, and hurried toward the harbor. As they worked their way down the crowded thoroughfare toward the sea with no sign of their quarry, Javin's guts settled into his feet. Were they too late? Had the Black Furies already sailed? If they had, he would curse himself until the end of his days. By mid-afternoon they reached the harbor. The docks and streets were thick with carts and wagons and laborers. They split up to search the streets and piers. The port of Yarburg stretched around the harbor, nearly to the farthest stone spit on the northernmost point, with its tall alabaster-white lighthouse. The sun sank lower and lower. At dusk the docks would begin to settle down. Ships were departing on the evening tide. The harbor became a forest of mast and canvas, wind-plump sails dragging their ships toward the open sea. Javin hurried up and down the wharfs, his eyes scanning the crowds and warehouses. Endless shoals of indifferent eyes glanced up at him and continued about their business, sweat-stained shoulders, dark, unshaven faces. The further along the docks he went, the crowds became sparser, the men looked rougher. In this area, ships were smaller, darker, older, with worn sails and barnacled hulls moored before half-rotten warehouses built during the age of swords. As the docks ahead of Javin grew fewer and fewer, his hope waned. Then he spotted the rear end of a white-painted wagon inside a warehouse. He reined up and took a long look. Lean, hard men were carrying crates, bags, and barrels onto a ship. They barely gave him a second look as he jumped off Saltstone's back and tied him to a hitching post near the door. He searched his memory, but he had seen none of the Black Furies besides Carl and Rusk in his brief visit to the Rook's Nest. He could not simply burst out and ask that they were the Black Furies. They would more likely kill him and stuff his body in a barrel than answer truthfully. A slim woman stood on the deck of the ship, with long black hair tied under a scarlet bandana, fair of skin, and with clothes more suited to a man. She was speaking to a man who might be the captain or first mate of the ship, Silver Hind. The man gave her a skeptical expression, interspersed with long looks at her breasts and hips. Her shoulders were square, hands on her hips. She wore tall leather boots and a long knife at her belt. He could not see her face, but even though she was smaller, her presence so dominated the other man that she seemed to tower over him. Finally, the man acquiesced to whatever they were discussing, and she nodded with satisfaction and turned toward the gangplank, giving Javin a good look at her face. He stood stock still. That face had been engraved upon his mind, no matter what color her hair. Sasha was perhaps the last person in the world he had expected to see here. In the moment that he recognized her, her eyes fixed on him and flashed with the same recognition. They walked toward each other, Javin with strange tingling, and she with her fists clenched at her sides, shoulders squared, and sparks building to a blaze in her eyes. The men parted before her advance. She came up before Javin and stood with one hand on her hip and the other clutching the hilt of her dagger. Her voice was calm and even, belying the flames in her forest green eyes. "'What have you come to steal this time?' "'I came to steal nothing. I came to speak to your boss. Are you going to try to knife me again over a mere slip of clothing?' "'A slip of clothing you were fool enough to lose. Was it worth risking your life for?' He thought of Bella for a moment, until he remembered the sensation of Sasha's feather-soft nether hair brushing between his fingers, and for a second he wondered which was more important at this moment. Their eyes met, and he did not look away. It was. I would do it again. Something in his eyes made her blink and look away for an instant, and he wondered what she saw. She crossed her arms. "'Tell me what you intend to tell the boss, and then be on your way. You're not welcome here.' "'Do you think I'm a fool?' I'm here to talk to your boss alone, and he's a fool if he doesn't speak to me. She sniffed. He's not here. How did you find us? It doesn't matter. Tell me where to find him. It does matter. You could have been followed. We were not followed. Where is he? You don't hear well. I said he's not here. The tingle of pleasure that Javin felt before rapidly dwindled into a hard, tense heat. That's not an answer, Sasha. I have come too far. Are you going to pull your pistol on me again? Put it to my head? She fixed him with a sultry smirk. Oh, no, you lost your pistol. Do you mean this one? He put his hand on the pistol at his side. Or don't you recognize it? Her gaze flicked down for an instant, perplexity crossing her shapely lips. She looked away and thrust out her strong chin. Sensing he had scored a slight advantage, he pressed on. He hasn't arrived yet, has he? She shook her head. He was due this morning. Had he arrived, we would have sailed on the evening tide. A flood of cool relief washed away the tension that had cranked his shoulders tighter than a crossbow string. Then that is fortunate, because he'll want to hear what I have to tell him. A hard but quiet voice rumbled just over Javin's shoulder. Are you so sure of that, Lord Codsucker Wollstone? Javin restrained his reflex to jump and turn but he turned and saw Rusk standing two paces away, wearing a monk's hooded habit, concealing most of his face. A golden amulet of a sun-disk, about the size of his palm, gleamed in the slanting rays of the sun. His voice, however, was unmistakable. Sasha said with a smile, "'Now there's the biggest monk I ever saw!' Karl stepped out from behind him, wearing a similar disguise. "'He should have dressed as an Enonite nun,' "'Then he would have been the ugliest nun you ever saw,' "'Rusk tossed back over his shoulder. "'And you would have been the prettiest!' "'A short, gray-haired man with a strange, upside-down physique, "'whiter at the waist than at the shoulders but still pure muscle, "'approached them, pushing his spectacles up with one finger. "'Javin recognized him as the man from the stable at the rook's nest. "'The man's voice was quiet and mild. "'Good to see you, boss. Why a monk this time?' "'Rusk cracked a crooked grin.' I have many sins to atone for. Our ship from Norgard would have been faster if we'd hired a rowboat. Stores loaded, Ost? Equipment? Ost smiled quietly. Nearly finished, boss, but we're too late for the evening tide. Rusk nodded. I didn't want to lose another day, but I couldn't well do anything but curse the wind. It seems my delay has allowed Lord Codsucker Wollstone here to catch up with us. Rusk squared on Javin. And why? Has Lord Codsucker Wollstone come all this way? Javin looked squarely into Rusk's craggy, weather-worn features. There is a lot to tell, sir. After what has happened, we should discuss it on board ship, after we depart. Rusk laughed. We? What makes you think you're coming along? First of all, you've been on board ship for a week, and you departed Norgard after some developments. I'll not discuss it with you here in the open, sir, and I'm quite surprised we've stood out here this long, yapping like schoolgirls. Good point. Inside. Javin stood before Rusk, Carl, Ost, and Sasha inside the warehouse, behind the wagons, and after Javin had told them about the recent events in Norgard, he felt strangely deflated. "'I trust you are a man of your word, Commander Rusk.' "'I am, Lord Codsucker Rollstone, to a fault occasionally. I must thank you for bringing all this to me. It changes things,' Carl said. "'It certainly opens up other possibilities.' "'I have some suspicions, but—' We won't know more until we get closer to our quarry. Your father is a tough old fucker. He's the only great house lord I respect. Would have been a shame for him to die that way. And no one knows you're here. Only Tonin, sir. And where is he? Somewhere in the harbor district, looking for you, sir, we came together. I can use Codsucker Tonin. He speaks farthy. With him along, we won't have to hire someone along the way. Thank you, sir. He'll be happy to hear it. I think he'll make a useful addition to our company, and— But you, on the other hand, you're a different mater. Javin stiffened. Why is that, sir? Because you've done little to prove that you're anything more than a noble dandy on some fantastical night's quest. Do you think yourself a hero, Lord codcircle Wollstone No, sir. I don't, I just want to get my sister back, sir. See, now that's where you failed me again. You cannot see the larger mission here. Although we're trying to save her life, if possible, she's just a means to the purpose. We're going after her to stop a war that could leave this entire continent in flames. Do you understand that? Javin suppressed the snarl growing on his lips. What makes you think the next war will be any different than the last, sir? Because if Janus Wollstone goes to war over his daughter, if the Farthy parade her corpse through the streets of Al-Zab, or sell her off to some harem, or turn her into an earless, bald-shaven kitchen slave, how far do you think he'll go? His mind will know that it should not be a personal war, but his heart will know different, and consider this. Imagine the dedication of the men who stole her, have you ever heard of any spies infiltrating the highest ranks of Cuscan society, the bloody fucking blue dragons of all things, and then lying in wait for years? Helian only knows how many of them are hiding in the shadows. Undertaking that kind of mission, think of it. Devoting your entire life to living with your enemy, simply waiting for the opportunity to strike one blow. Your father wisely kept this out of the eyes of the people for as long as he has. Imagine the fear if the news of how far this goes gets out. Striking that kind of fear into people takes a special brand of zealotry. Do you have that kind of dedication? Javin said nothing. Do you? Rusk moved a step closer. I I don't know, sir. Do you know anyone who does? You do, sir. All of you. Javin glanced around at the four stern figures standing before him. Aye, we fucking do indeed. Do you expect us to wait around while you decide? Rusk moved a step closer. No, sir. Javin could smell Rusk's breath now. Then make a fucking decision, Lord Codsucker Wollstone. If you accompany us, I will assume you have nothing less than that level of dedication. Do you truly understand me? Aye, sir, I do, and I'm coming with you. Rusk stepped back and nodded. Very well, but know this. If, at any moment, you jeopardize our mission, if I ever suspect that your dedication is flagging, I will put an armed spawn of steel in your guts and throw you overboard. No one will know your fate except the sharks. Do you understand, Lord Codsucker Wollstone? Javin looked Rusk squarely in the eye and nodded once. Good. Now, go and find Codsucker Tonin before he wanders off the end of a pier and drowns. Chapter 24 What do you suppose she is, Captain? The first mate, Canton. "'asked as he looked through the spyglass toward the distant sail. "'The other ship had been pacing them since morning, "'nothing but a distant splotch of sail against the endless tossing sea. "'He handed the spyglass to the captain. "'The captain of Silver Hind was Forley Nightlighter, "'a gaufrini by birth who claimed to know the coastal waters "'better than any man alive. "'Captain Nightlighter was tall and lanky, "'with a shaven head, weathered red cheeks, "'and a long salted red beard.' The man Javin had been speaking to Sasha at the dock was Canton, quite the opposite in demeanor to the captain. Where the captain was jovial and gregarious, the first mate was grim and taciturn, like an old boot left forgotten in the corner, still useful but dusty and toughened by age. Captain Nightlighter took the spyglass and peered through it again. "'Aye, curse me, but that's a brigantine. Cannot tell to make, but tis a fast and wily ship.' Canton said, "'Surely not a pirate in these waters.' "'I'm mighty far from pirate waters, "'but I hear the Navy's patrols have changed their usual haunts. "'Might be just a ting for a bold pirate to dart into the breach "'and grab a bit of booty while the Cuskin Navy's back be turned. "'Can you make out any colors?' "'Nay, nee, I cannot. "'Nothing to worry about right now except to keep an eye on it. "'And ship like that could overtake this old beauty without blinking an eye. "'Keep an eye on it, Canton. Ay, "'Aye, Captain.' Javin and Rusk both happened to be within earshot of the conversation. Rusk displayed no reaction. Rusk had shed his guise as a monk, and now looked like the mercenary he was. The captain forbade wearing swords and guns on deck, and Rusk acceded to his wishes, but the company's store of weapons and ammunition was safely shrouded below decks. Nevertheless, Rusk looked like a man born with a broadsword in one hand and a pistol in the other. His arms were thick and hairy, and his torso looked like an iron-wrapped barrel. He wore an iron-studded leather bracer to conceal the Black Fury tattoo. The ship that the Black Furies had hired to carry them around the northern coast of Cuska, Silver Hind, was an old three-masted bark with broad beam and a deep cargo hold. It was a merchant ship likely built in one of the free cities, and Javin could only marvel at the complexity of the rigging and in- an intricate knowledge possessed by the sure-footed sailors who scampered like tree-bilbies over the decks and rigging. Bow-legged, barefooted men, faces worn hard by sun and salt, gnarled hands and knotted limbs, flinty squints for eyes and grim gashes for mouths. Javin found himself wondering how two ships could ever chance to encounter each other in such a vast and empty sea. They were only four days out from Yarburg, but Javin still brimmed with such excitement he could hardly contain himself. The first day at sea, even the second, brought wondrous experiences. The seas were placid and warm, the sun bright, the wind fresh, filling the sails and driving silver hind northward up the coast. He had expected the ship to remain within sight of land, but soon the black, craggy line of Cusca diminished into the distance. He heard mention of a North Yarburg current that would cut their voyage by days if they could find it. The ship's crew knew nothing of the nature of the Black Furies or their cargo. Rusk and the Furies built a persona of a loose conglomeration of merchants, bodyguards, and travelers who had agreed upon a destination and saw fit to travel together. There was nothing loose about them, however. Rusk had introduced Javin and Tonin briefly to all of the Black Furies. Javin memorized all of the names and faces he sensed in his gut that he would have to prove himself not only to Rusk, but to each one of them. With faces and physiques as varied as their names, the Black Furies caught Javin's imagination stronger than the finest phalanx of precision-marching soldiers. Each of them was like a uniquely forged chunk of steel. Javin had not been happy to see Maggot again, however. At the sight of Maggot's haggard, wearied face and haunted eyes, Javin took some satisfaction in knowing that the best man had not won the contest back at the Rook's Nest. He did not know the travails to which Maggot had been subjected since that day, but he suspected they were unpleasant indeed. This grim satisfaction did nothing to reduce his contempt for Maggot, however. Throughout the first day at sea, while the Black Furies had been ordered to simply stay out of the crew's way, Javin often caught Maggot's hard stare. Javin just turned his back and walked away rusk made it clear that Javin and Tonin would join maggot in the training regiment as soon as they were off ship the ship's crew would see no evidence of any organized military style training during the voyage he also made it clear that they were not black furies they were merely inconvenient hangers-on like ignorant bastard children best left under supervision the crew paid little attention to the passengers accustomed to traveling merchants, mercenaries, and other unsavory characters booking passage to the free cities, where the king and queen of the gods were not Helian and Inanan, but gold and silver. Riches recognized no master, not Cuscan, nor Farthy nor their rival gods, and neither did the free cities. The free captains asked no questions and expected nothing from their passengers beyond the gold offered for their passage. This neutrality would help the Black Furies pursue the galley called Gullwing, and find their way into Fartha. Life on board Silver Hind was a never-ending flurry of activity, except at night, when the ship's crew settled into its multitude of hammocks draped among the stores and meager weaponry. The passengers had brought their own hammocks, and the captain offered two cabins as well, but they all kept separate from the ship's crew in their own compartment of the cargo hold. Sasha had her own cabin, and Rusk and Carl shared another. Twice a day the ship's galley served edible meals, salted bock meat with hard biscuit and dried fruit, washed down with ale. Occasionally, someone would haul aboard a fresh fish or two. Javin marveled at the efficiency of the ship's cook, a man named Chom. With the help of a young cabin boy, Limpt, they served up dozens of plates of food in an astonishingly short time. Chom and Lempt were quite a pair. The former, a portly, red-faced man with round cheeks and double jowls, and the latter, a miniature version of the same. Lempt somehow withstood the endless haranguing by his elder shipmates. He apparently ignored the sometimes cruel catcalls, perhaps even accepting some of it as signs of affection. In many cases, Javin realized, Lempt was mistaken, as callous cruelty was evident on some of the sailors' faces. These men lived on the sea because the land would not have them. They had sought a harsh mistress to forbear their harsh natures. Unfortunate boys such as Lempt were the favorite target of amusement for men such as these. Javin absorbed all of these observations and stored them away. At times the blood thrummed through his veins with rare vigor. Now, on the fourth day, the excitement had begun to flag, and his overvigilant senses were beginning to let his mind rest. Standing at the bowsprit with only the endless blue expanse before him, slowly lifting and falling, feeling the wind and the spray in his face, It all began to lose its novelty, but he knew that he was on the right path. He felt fortunate not to suffer like Tonin, however. Tonin had spent the first two days leaning over the gunwale, with a definite greenish cast to his features. The seasickness tore at Tonin's pride, but he took solace in the fact that some of the Black Furies lacked sea legs as well, and spent hours on their backs trying to forget the heave and fall of the deck. They were warriors, not sailors. Javin sensed that they were saving their jibes and ribbing until they were alone among themselves. They would not break their disguises, even for some brotherly ribbing. Captain Nightlighter distributed a spicy ginger tea to help those sorely afflicted. Tonin said that seasickness punished him less than that ride from Norgard. Javin regretted having to sell saltstone. The powerful buck had been a loyal mount since Javin had been a lord lieutenant at Tarns Rift. But the collad would be of no use where they were going and there would be no point in stabling him if Javin never returned. He recalled for a moment how it felt to accept the Kalad dealer's coins, as if he was leaving the last of his old life behind. Sasha kept to herself in a private cabin below. She and Rusk felt it best that she stay out of sight and out of mind to prevent any problems with the sailors. Sailors were a notoriously randy and superstitious lot, and the first mate had objected to Sasha's presence on the voyage. "'Women on board ship were bad luck,' he said. "'Sailors had made offhand comments about Sasha that would have made a whore blush, "'and Javin felt a sudden surge of anger, but he said nothing. "'Idle talk among commoners was not worth the trouble it would cause for Javin to reprimand them. "'He was doubtless the only man of noble birth on the entire ship, save Carl. "'Javin spotted Carl coming up from below decks. "'Carl stretched his long limbs and looked around.' Doubtless living in the low-ceilinged, cramped spaces below deck was uncomfortable for a man of his height. Javin stepped around a massive coil of rope and approached him. Carl glanced at him and turned his shoulder. Javin began, Sir, I... Carl flashed him a look that made his words dry up in his throat. Carl turned his back and walked away, and Javin decided to leave his thanks unspoken. Whatever Carl's reasons for helping Javin, they would remain unknown for now. Canton called out from the poop deck. Captain, she's matching our course. Captain Nightlighter came out of his cabin under the poop deck, climbed the steps, and peered through the spyglass. Aye, she's not just matched our course, she's closing. Shall I have the men load the cannons, Captain? Aye, load the port cannons, but don't open the gun ports. Quietly, aye. Aye, aye, sir. Canton came down the steps past Javin and began to gather a few crewmen to take below decks. Silver Hind shipped two cannons on each side, and a large-bore chase gun in the hold below the captain's cabin. Javin felt a sharp pinch on the back of his arm, and Rusk's low voice over his shoulder. "'Come with me.' Javin followed Rusk below decks to the cargo hold where the Black Fury's weapons were stored. Within moments, all of them were there, as if they had all answered a silent call. The orange light of the single lantern shone on their grim faces. Rusk stood in the middle of them and said, "'This ship's armament is enough to fend off a few half-hearted or lightly armed pirates, but it cannot withstand a concerted attack. The closer that ship gets, the greater the chance that it's a pirate. Only Captain Nightlighter knows who we are. He is a good man and a stolid captain, but he's no naval commander. Some of the crew might be fair enough in a scrap, but if that ship turns out to be a pirate—' We will be getting our hands dirty. I have a plan. What about the captain? Carl asked. Will he agree to your plan? If it comes to a fight, he won't have any choice. She's gone, Captain. Canton reported. About an hour ago, she pulled far ahead of us. I can't sight her any more. Helian's descent had turned the sky and sea into a tapestry of rainbow ribbons. The air had cooled, and the breeze diminished with the coming evening. Captain Nightlighter manned the wheel. Aye, off to the northwest, then. Aye, Captain. Very well, Canton. After dark, we'll double the watch. Aye. We must keep an eye open. If dey's pirates, dey might double back on us. Tensions on Silver Hind had been building all day, as the distant ship closed on them, then veered away, always overtaking, until it eventually passed them and now disappeared into the distance ahead. Javin caught sight of Sasha lurking in the shadows near one of the hatches, her hair tied into a long ponytail looked blacker than coal as it draped down across her loose white tunic. Her arms were crossed, her face pensive. Javin watched her for a long time. He could not drive from his mind the heart-stopping dance in the scarlet sash. He took a deep breath and approached her. Her gaze turned toward him at the moment he moved, as if she had been waiting for it. He held her gaze as he approached, and she watched him come. Most of the sailors had gone below for the night except for the watch, and none of them stood within earshot. Javin thought he spotted Rusk and and Carl far aft, leaning against the gunwale and looking out to sea. There was no one to hear. Well, Sasha said, did you walk all the way over here just to stand beside me like a schoolboy? Next you want to pull my hair. Her voice was not as harsh as her words implied, but something lurked beneath her demeanor. I came over here to ask you a question." The muscles of Javin's neck tensed. Why did you attack me in the Scarlet Sash? If you were working for him all along, why did you try to kill me? Her gaze was steady. I wouldn't have killed you. Injured you, certainly, but not killed you. The boss doesn't like us to kill the codsuckers on the first day. But one moment we're having a conversation, and the next you're aiming a knife at my belly with blood in your eyes. Why? Must I explain it to you? Please do. The test was about a lot more than just stealing my sash. It was about strength, endurance, cunning. She tapped her temple with a finger. Perhaps even teamwork, under the right circumstances. I might have given you the sash willingly, but for one thing. What is that? You simply marched into my chamber and blurted the boss's name and your purpose. If there is anything the boss drills into the head of every fresh codsucker, it is, keep your mouth shut. She glanced about for possible eavesdroppers and lowered her voice. The Black Furies are shadows, ghosts. We do not exist until the moment we choose to make our existence known. Secrecy, utter, opaque, pitch-black secrecy. We speak only with one another, and only when we are alone. So, by speaking the boss's name. But I didn't know that! Perhaps not, but as I said, the test was about cunning and the ability to perceive things that aren't spoken or out in the open, and to see and deduce things that everyday people overlook. When you failed in that, you forced me to test you in a different way, which you did manage to pass even though you failed to suspect that one of the other codsuckers might be willing to take advantage of you doing all the work. Javin took a deep breath and let it out slowly as he looked her in the eye. So, Madam Teacher, under what scenario would have you given me the sash willingly? Sasha smiled faintly and stepped forward, uncrossing her arms. Here's something you should probably remember. Women like to be teased. She took a step closer to him. Tantalized. Another half-step, and he could feel her warmth against the flesh of his arms and face. Seduced. Her breath whispered under his chin. That scent that he remembered so vividly filled his nostrils, spices, and musk. The hair on his arms rose like the quills of a spine rat, and his blood stirred deep in his belly. Each puff of breath from her words stroked his throat. A bit of that, and I might have given you the sash. The moment lingered between them. "'until she shattered it with a quiet laugh and walked away. "'Sleep well, Lord Cotsucker Wollstone.' "'Javin cleared his throat and realized that he had been holding his breath. "'He blinked his eyes and took another deep breath "'as he watched her shape recede into the shadows across the deck. "'Before long, she stood with Rusk and Carl "'and joined them in quiet conversation, "'leaving Javin with his arms and legs covered in goose flesh "'and his heart thundering in his chest. "'A shrill voice called out from the masthead. "'Sail ho!' Flashes of orange sparks erupted in the distance. Plumes of water exploded on either side of Silver Hind, followed swiftly by the distant crackle of thunderous reports. The alarm bell began to clatter on the poop deck, and like a den of sleeping rats, Silver Hind came to life around him. Javin ran toward Rusk, Carl, and Sasha. "'Shall I wake the rest of the men, sir?' Rusk's eyes and teeth gleamed bone-white in the darkness, bared in a fierce grin. No need. The shadowed, pale faces of Ost and the other Furies waited in the darkness of the nearby hatch, gazing up with grim, dark eyes like a pack of chained pit wolves. Now get below, Rusk said. We're going to give these pirates a nasty surprise. Thank you for listening to Rogues of the Black Fury by Travis Heerman. If you enjoy the story, don't be shy. Let me know. I would love to hear from you. And don't forget to go to this podcast's homepage and click the donate button. Give whatever you like, but is $4.99 really too much to ask for this many hours of entertainment? Rogues of the Black Fury is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. I encourage you to copy it and give it away to all your roguish friends. Just don't change it or sell it, or the Black Furies will soon be coming after you